0: This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. My first reaction probably everyone's is, wow, so many stars. And then you look more closely. You go, oh my God, those little specks aren't stars. Every one of those little specks is a galaxy, is a Milky Way. I mean, thousands of them in this little piece of sky that you kind of always thought was empty. And that just sort of blows my mind. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, You'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you. And also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplorers.com.
1: In the November of 1990, I was 10 and for my birthday, my father had bought me a red telescope. There was a purpose about it no other toy had. With it came an inbuilt excitement about seeing faraway places that provoked dreams about what it was like to be an explorer in space. Looking back at the dates, it's no surprise telescopes were flying off the shelves of toy stores in London, because a mere seven months earlier, NASA's telescope Hubble, finally launched, captivating our attention, and Kathy Sullivan was one of the astronauts who helped put it there. My name is Toby Goodman. You may have heard my voice on episode 63 entitled, You Should Do a Podcast About That. As you all likely know, Cathy is no stranger to exploring new frontiers on land, at sea and in space. And of course, she also has a unique perspective on space telescopes. With all the excitement about the images the James Webb telescope is transmitting back to Earth, like so many full-time Earth dwellers, I had no real sense of how all this came about. After I'd asked a few rookie level questions, Kathy suggested she shared her answers on this podcast. I started by asking her about the people behind the names of both Hubble and Webb and to help me get clear on the physical differences between each telescope.
0: Well, the answer to the first one, of course, is that they're both named after uh, prominent people who played a big role in astronomy, in the case of Edwin P. Hubble, and in the case of NASA itself, in James Webb's case. So Edwin P. Hubble was an astronomer back in the 20s-ish, as I recall. And astronomers at this point, they'd figured out a scheme to try to tease apart, if you see a star in the sky, how can I tease apart how far away it is and how bright it is? Because it could be super 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 bright but way far away and it might appear the same brightness as something that's much dimmer but much closer so i'd like to know which is which and i particularly like to start mapping out what bright bits in the sky because we call them stars but of course some some of them are galaxies which bits are how far away and so that had been worked out before hubble in fact a key part of that was put together by one of the first women in astronomy in the United States back in the 1800s. And what Hubble did was use that standard set of measurements. It's called a standard candle. So I see how bright a star is in my telescope, and I now have a way to sort out, well, that one is is actually that far away, and it's intrinsically this bright. It might look brighter or dimmer, depending how close it is, but it's got some... You know it's like a light bulb has an intrinsic brightness but it will look differently if you're near it or far it so that had been figured out and hubble applied it to a certain kind of star called the cepheid variables that they vary in brightness it's like as if you're running the dimmer on a light up and down and they do that with a very regular rhythm or period to them and it turns out it's that period that helps you pull apart distance and brightness he did that across Lots of observations over many, many nights, and sorted out which stars were how far away, and that he came up with a constant that helped describe how rapidly the universe must be expanding for this distribution of stars to exist. That's known to this day as the Hubble constant. So that was a big thing. And the Hubble Space Telescope was, you know, the first optical visual wavelengths like our eyes, big telescope to go up into space so no clouds no turbulence in the atmosphere like really perfect conditions and among other things it would be able to make the observations that could make hubble's first calculation of the hubble constant much more precise so that's how you know hubble came to be named for edwin hubble because his contribution was huge and james webb was an early administrator of nasa so head of the entire agency back in you know, some of the very the agency's very crucial formative years in the Mercury, Gemini, Apollo time, a really quite revered figure, not just a bureaucrat, but a, a true engineer who also was very skilled at uh, working the ways of Washington and helping NASA get established as a young agency and grow and thrive. So it's a common and good thing you know, to honor people who came before you who laid really important foundation stones that so much else has been built upon afterwards. And so we call them Hubble and Webb. And for size, Hubble has just one mirror and it's 2.4 meters, or about eight feet in diameter. The James Webb has one mirror, but it's a mosaic of 18 different mirrors. And each of those mirrors is shaped in a hexagon, not a circle. And each one of those is a meter diameter. So each of Webb's 18 mirrors is half the diameter of Hubble's entire mirror. So, you know, you can put six of those across and get a sense that the diameter of Webb's total mirror is on the order of six times the diameter of Hubble's mirror. And then the school bus comparison is what I use to give people a rough sense of the the overall size of Hubble itself, the whole big silver cylinder that the mirror sits inside and the solar wings hang off of. That's about what's the size of a school bus. Or for Toby as a Londoner, it's probably, if you cut the top off a double-decked red London bus, it's probably about the size of the bottom half. Well, of either half actually, but that gives you a rough idea. So about the size of a school bus. So we can all kind of imagine the size of a a bus, right? So now imagine the size of a tennis court. Hubble's big mirror of 18 segments is mounted on top of a sunshade uh, so that the instruments inside can stay super, super cold. That lets them look in the infrared wavelengths of light, which, you know, our eyes can't see, but they reveal a lot about stars and galaxies. So that's and that's what Webb is designed to do is not not make images that are directly like what our eyes could see, but look at things our eyes can't see. But that tell us a lot about stars and galaxies and the clouds of, of gas and dust in the universe. And to do that, its detectors have got to be super, super cold. So the only signal hitting them is the energy from the stars and galaxies, not you know random bits of heat and stuff from the environment around them. So this sun shield is the size of a tennis court, and it's four layers of material. And that's the side that is always pointed towards the sun. So the instruments on web and the mirror are always in deep, 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 dark shadow. And once you get out of an atmosphere one of the challenges of building a spacecraft is the side that's facing the direct sun is going to be heated up to hundreds of degrees the direct sun is that intense even at the distance we are from the sun and flip side in the shade and the shadow on the other side it's going to get super cold yeah and we all we all know this a little bit when a warm very hot day outside and you step in the shadow you instantly feel A nice degree of cooling just because the sun's not beating down on you. Well, you know, multiply that by a bunch for Webb, and that's what the sunshield is designed to do.
1: So tell me about these images we've seen. We're speaking in July 2022, and we're just starting to see these incredible images coming from James Webb for the first time. And so I'm wondering what memories of your trips up to space and the work you've done on Hubble, what, what kind of memories have they brought back? And also what, what are these images doing to you personally? You know, They're stopping people in their tracks who know nothing about space. Yeah. And I can see that. So tell me more about that.
0: It, well, they're stopping me in my tracks. I mean, I, just, I think it's just spectacular. And uh, it's one of the interesting threads of continuity to me uh, between Hubble and Webb you know hubble had the good fortune to come along if you think back to the big scheme of things hubble had the good fortune to come along really just as the internet was becoming a thing and and personal devices were becoming really small things you could carry around easily in your pocket and all these images are digital i mean there there's no film in any instrument aboard hubble or web right these telescopes take quote unquote pictures Image is a better word. They take images the same way your cell phone does. It's just there's a detector chip inside your phone that you know has 12 million pixels in it, and a little light hits each pixel, and the, the computer easily lays all that out in a square and says, "Whoa, look, it's a picture." Except you know it's an image. Well, they both do it that way, and so this stuff all comes down in digital form and can easily you know be pushed out to millions and millions of people in an instant. I mean, can you imagine if Galileo had been able to take his very first glimpse of the heavens in 1610 and circulated around to however many millions of people lived on earth at that time? In his case, he could draw a sketch of it and he could, you know, walk around with the sketch or, you know, mail it by courier to a few other people. Hubble's images hit millions of people all at once. And it's really you could see astronomy flood into the popular imagination and media the way it had never done before. I mean, you can see U-Haul trucks, you know, self-rental moving trucks in the United States with a Hubble on the side of it. You see it on socks. You see images that Hubble produced on socks and children's lunchboxes. It's it's all over. It's fabulous. And so Webb is the next surfer to come along and, and ride that wave. And it is, of course, seeing for all the reasons we just said cold detectors and further out and looking in different wavelengths of light, it is seeing even further into the universe and further back in time than Hubble could do. And that's because its mirror is so much larger. You know, when you push the button on your cell phone, you hear the little click and you you that's it, you've got the image. And we all know what happens if you try to take an image like in a room late in the evening and The click is not instant. You hear a click and then a click. You usually have to take that picture again because your hand moved in between. Hubble and Webb take very long exposures. They don't have jittery hands. They have very precise gyroscopes that keep them super, super stable. So they can point very, very accurately at a little tiny patch of the sky and then can hold their focus on that patch for a very long time. And that's important because there are actually not many photons or little bits of light coming from galaxies that are 10 light years away. So you've got to, you know, sit there and kind of think of it as letting your detector soak in that light for some fair while to collect enough photons to make an image. So, you know, what Webb does, like I said, there's no film. Many of these instruments have you know, three different detector chips in them. So you get, you know, multiple adds the resolution, right? And they all have various filters, which is not like an Instagram filter where you've got a picture and you add fake things to it by filtering. But more like if you put on sunglasses with red shaded lenses or green shaded lenses or blue shaded lenses, the lens in front of your eye will change what light gets to your retina and what you actually see. So that's what you're doing. And that lets you pick. That's what lets scientists pick which part of the energy coming to them from this uh, sector of the sky, which part do they want to look at And And they don't pick that, you know, randomly, like we pick Instagram filters. They pick it because different wavelengths of light are fingerprints of different chemical elements or different features in a star or a galaxy. So it's a, a very informed choosing of which filters to use. If you want to get, really understand how how much dust is out in this image, cosmic dust is in this image, you'd pick certain filters. If you want to see if there's, you know, hydrogen in that, how much hydrogen is is in that bright galaxy you're looking at, you would pick different filters.
1: I only have wow as a reaction. To it.
0: <laughs> and oh, by the way, oh, by the way, we can't see any of this light with our eyes. So how come we're seeing pictures? The scientists take the brightness that each detector pixel came up with, which is just the amount of infrared energy, each one registered. And they lay a color scale over that so they can translate it into something we can appreciate. I mean, our eyes are the very best input sensor we have as humans. You know, if you're a really solid scientist, you could just look at the numbers or look at the spectrum and get a lot out of it. The rest of us peasants, we'll absorb and appreciate a lot more of it if you turn it into something that I'm built to recognize and appreciate. So they take they take light like they actually measured in a spectrum we can't see, and they lay on top of it a color scale that fits what our eyes can do. And that's how they create these images that we're able to see and appreciate. That's not what they look like when they come up, right. when they come off the telescope detector.
1: So in your book, Handprints on Hubble, available at Sullivanexplores.com Thank you for that. That's all right. You give a detailed account about what it was like to be part of the team who built and launched Hubble. And you talk a lot about the team as well, which is Fantastic. And I think part of the reason why you wrote the book, because it's more than just a few people that got Hubble up into space, but the vision for a telescope in space happened a long time before you joined NASA. So can you give me a sense of the amount of time from its inception or even the idea of a telescope in space it's taken and up until, until the time that Hubble was launched, how many how many people estimate, if you like, it Mm -hmm. took to get Hubble up into space and operational.
0: I had a lot of fun learning more about that story as I did the research for the book. I knew a few snippets of it, and the more I dug into it, I was just amazed by the, the power of the human imagination. The first mention of such an idea that I could find, that I think anyone can find, is in about 1929, a German astronomer named Hermann Obert. So if you think about it, 1929, the only thing that has happened in space is Jules Fern and Buck Rogers' stories, right? It's like it's fantasy, it's total fantasy. But he's an astronomer, and he knows all about the problems of trying to look at the cosmos from the Earth. And so he asks, a what if? He said, well, you know, what if, what if I could be rid of all this stuff? What if I could be above the atmosphere and never have to worry about this stuff again? What if I could put a telescope in space, you know, where the stars are for crying out loud? I mean, right near Earth, but still. And he didn't just write a sentence down. He he did some analysis. He did, he put some basic mathematical astronomical thinking into it. No computers, you know, knowledge, equations, reason, logic, and math. That's what he had. And he gave a conceptual, a very good conceptual description of you'd want the telescope to be. Sort of like this. I mean, pretty big because it would be great if you're going to put it up there. Let's make it a big one that can really catch a lot of light and see really far and see really brightly. Of course, the world's art of engineering was nowhere near able to do that in the 1920s. But he put the concept out there. And it certainly, you know, it inspired the imagination of other people who came after him. In 1946 in the United States, World War II has ended the United States had mobilized a huge array of its scientists and engineers into the war effort. And the president at the time, President Truman, asked his science advisor to think about another question, which was, okay, we mobilized massive amounts of people who've managed the army, we're demobilizing all of them and sending them home to go back into their lives and other jobs. What should we do with the scientific capability we built? We could say thanks a lot. It's been fun. You know, well done. Go home. But should we do something else with it? I mean, with the war issue solved, are there other problems and challenges the country faces that perhaps we ought to redirect, keep the science enterprise? It would change some, but let's not send everybody home. Let's continue this national effort to have science drive advances for the benefit of the country. And if we did that, should we do that? And if we did, what kinds of problems should it tackle? And Vannevar Bush was this gentleman's name and he wrote a renowned report called The Endless Frontier, which shaped the American science enterprise from that really that point on, it it led to the foundation of our National Science Foundation, et cetera, et cetera. A Princeton astronomer named Lyman Spitzer, who was peripherally associated with the war effort and with Vannevar Bush, he suggested Space and astronomy should be one of the things for scientific purposes, should be one of the things that we continue on with. And Bush invited him to write a paper about, well, what what could we do there? And one of the prospects that Spitzer mentions in his paper is we now, you know, rocketry is becoming a thing and rocketry has not put anything into orbit yet, not by a long shot. But you can see, you can see that if we continue developing it, it will we will get to those speeds. We will be able to put people and objects into orbit. And a large telescope is one of the things we should consider putting into orbit. And Spitzer gets pretty precise. He, he does you know wavelength calculations and says, look, it should be, I think he said a three meter mirror, which is a little more than 10 feet. It should be a three meter mirror. And he lays out, not a random choice, he lays out the because, the specific scientific things Telescope with that diameter would let you do well. Again, the engineering is not quite there in 1946 when he writes this report, but as we now all know, it gets there in 1957 when the Soviets put Yuri Gagarin into orbit, and it keeps evolving forward. And so, you know, that's data point number two. The second bead on the string is Lyman Spitzer in 1946. Between 1946 and the mid-1960s, astronomers largely think this is a stupid idea. They are starting to put telescopes into orbit, but they're really small. They're like my telescope, my project, and I get it into orbit. What Spitzer had in mind was the equivalent of building an observatory on a mountaintop. Lots of astronomers can use it. It will stay there for a long time. You can pull out the electronics you had there for Toby's uh, studies and put in the ones Kathy needs over and over again. That's the kind of telescope we should put in orbit, an observatory, and so, By the mid 60s, rocketry is far enough along, you know, many other fields of science and astronomy and optics and electronics have all advanced. Now the astronomers think, you know, that actually could be a good idea. There's now a lot of us that think it would be worth the, I mean, it's going to be a big cost. It's going to take a lot of money from other things in astronomy I would love to do, but that would be worth it, provided, provided like that observatory on the mountaintop, You've got to be able to maintain this thing so it keeps running, and you've got to be able to change out instruments and technology so it doesn't doesn't get quickly dated. Maybe you put it on the mountaintop in 1950, but in, in 2000 or 2020, it should still be a really useful telescope. If you can make the one in space be like that, I would support that. And that's where the idea of where NASA really gets engaged, our National Academy of Sciences gets engaged, they endorsed the idea of a large space telescope with the caveat that it has to be maintainable in orbit. Now, in the 1960s, when this notion of you got to be able to maintain it in orbit first comes around, most of what that means is we need someone to go change the film on the cameras because it's all still film cameras at that point. But they also meant, you know, cameras will get better. You know, someone has to put the better camera in there. But that starts the, the really serious momentum Engineering starts to get engaged and really start to do the design work to say, okay, three meters. So if that's the mirror, how big does the rest of it have to be? You know, how do you power it? What batteries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you could say 1965-ish is the very first start of what became Hubble. It took about a decade for the engineering to continue to get better and Congress to be convinced enough to give NASA permission to actually get serious about it and start designing and building something. So, you know, very, very, very long road. Lots of people had to stay intrigued with the idea and bring it up periodically and argue its pros and cons periodically. And probably from the, I would say from the mid-60s onward, a few people, a small cadre of people in particular, were really the fierce advocates of it. Some were astronomers, some were astronomers who'd gone to Washington to be part of NASA's earliest astronomy program. And one of those is also revered. Nancy Grace Roman was NASA's first chief astronomer, and she is known pretty well by everybody as the mother of Hubble. She she was the champion all
1: the way through. So you've joined NASA and in 1990? Yeah, 1990, we took it to orbit. When did things start getting built and put together? You've got the design, you've got the sign-off, all of that stuff. How, how big big's that team and and how long did that take you?
0: Oh man, it would totally be an estimate. The, the significant engineering work, and I think the green light to actually start bending metal, as we say in the business. I think that was around, I think it was about 1973, but they were doing prototypes and things for a long time. Right about 1978. Yeah, that's right. 78. They got the for real green light. Go build this thing. That's what I joined NASA in 1978. Late 1984, I was assigned my spacewalking partner, Bruce McCandless. You two are going to be the two spacewalkers that take Hubble to orbit because there's a certain set of things that could go wrong in the deployment mission. You know, solar arrays that don't unfold and things like that. Make sure you've got the wrenches and tools that you need so you could suit up and go outside and crank them out by hand. And so we start working in late 84, early 85. Hubble is pretty well built at that time. It's in a gigantic hyper clean room in Northern California at the Lockheed Lockheed Martin Company. It's pretty close to totally complete. You, you test everything lots of times. It's, it's making its way through all of that testing because at that time, the target for launching it was like October of 1986. So we're assigned you know about two years before the flight to, to make sure all the spacewalking tools and equipment are, are ready. And our dis- big discovery was, yeah, actually they're not, like, they're really not ready too much at all. So 1985 to 1990 became a really, really intense effort to come up with a tool and be sure we knew how to use it on basically every single thing on Hubble that could be removed, replaced, repaired, backed up in a manual way if the automatic mechanism didn't work. And Lockheed Martin had a huge throng of people working on it. NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center, which was sort of the home base for the project, they had a huge number of people working on it, a few people at NASA headquarters, and then lots of contractors and universities building the different instruments, assembling the different components that Lockheed is bringing together. It is surely in the thousands, just in the years to get it to orbit, and I, you know, many thousands, I would guess. The flight when we took it to orbit, I mean, just the team really very directly focused on our mission and the deployment of the telescope, and you know, powering it up and getting it into initial operations. Johnson Space Center's got mission control running three shifts, you know, 24-7 through the mission. Marshall Space Flight Center's running 20, the Hubble Project is running 24-7. The Hubble Project at Lockheed is running 24-7. The telescope was being handed off to another one of NASA's centers, NASA Goddard. So they're running in parallel 24-7. And the science is going to be done out of yet another institute at the Johns Hopkins University. So, you know, the astronauts at Johnson Space Center and the engineers at Marshall are throwing a forward pass to the engineers at Goddard and the scientists at Hopkins. And that happens basically the moment we release the robotic arm from the shuttle, it's we're done, it's yours, instant. We're done, it's yours, be ready. Once upon a time, there was a very amusing series of commercials on the television in the United States where two Rolls Royces would pull up alongside each other on a motorway, freeway. And the windows, the passenger windows would roll down in the back. And one gentleman would look across the gap to the other and say, would you happen to have some great poupon? And the second guy would hand a jar of mustard across, you know, at 65 miles an hour on a motorway, pass me the mustard. It's that kind of a handoff, right? At 17,500 miles an hour, would you happen to have a telescope? Yeah, here it is. It's yours.
1: What I really took away from your book and one of the reasons why you were motivated to write it wasn't about your story. It was about the story of all of these other people and places and things that happened to, to enable you to get to the point where you're part of this massive team. So thanks for sharing that.
0: Yeah, I, you know, I kind of one of the greatest privileges of my life to you know had a significant part but in the big scheme of things in another sense almost a bit part look at that sweep of history i mean look at look at that legacy look look what you know look what i got to be a part of and and not i mean i think just being a spectator to it as as i am now with web is pretty spectacular but to be in it to be a part of it to be helping to make it happen that's part of why I named the book Handprints on Hubble, yes, there are actual handprints on Hubble from the astronauts that did the spacewalks and fixed it. I never did get to go outside and and work on Hubble in a spacesuit. But I feel like I have a handprint or at least a fingerprint on Hubble because of the contribution I made along the way to even getting it to that point. And so did every one of the thousands of engineers. I, I wrote the book because the chapter of figuring out how to we had to actually make this promise that we will fix it. We can fix it and keep it updated in orbit. That was a, a promise that had no, no substance to it, but it, we had to deliver on it. And so this team of engineers that did the creative designing and the building of the tools and the testing of the tools so that all those shuttle crews could go to those you know, spectacular repairs, they're like the hidden figures of the Hubble story. Their story had never been told. You know, you can't hide. That had to be told. I mean, their story and some of their names had to get into the historical record. And that's why I wrote the book. My life story is the oyster for carrying the hot sauce.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And the other thing that this conversation is revealing to me and listening to you speak about the early days, you know, back in in 1929, before you were part of it or or knew anything about it. Before I was born. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) the way that you speak about the the journey of getting this telescope up into orbit shows me why you value creativity so much
0: yeah i'm just the big question probably the biggest question i that drove my research was well when did this idea of maintaining it actually even start and when i discovered that it started in the 60s holy cow i mean This is endorsed by the National Academy, I think it was 1964 65. So there's been like, I think there have been three spacewalks ever in the history of humanity. One of them was almost fatal. The first Russian one was really almost fatal. Second American one was not quite as dicey, but, but kind of close. None of them have been longer than about 30 minutes. And you guys are nonchalantly saying that you're going to put a school bus in orbit and somebody and two people in big old spacesuits that don't even exist yet, by the way. Yeah, they're going to go out and like change the spark plugs on it. It's like, what daring imagination?
1: Again, I I didn't know until I met you. Hubble is this instrument that can be maintained. It can be upgraded. How different a telescope is it today than when you first sent it up?
0: So... NASA promised the astronomers that Hubble would operate and stay state-of-the-art for 15 years. It's now at 32 years, and not only it's still going strong, it's still doing fabulous astronomy. It's about a 1,000 times better telescope than it was when we put it up there. The mirror is the same. The computers have been upgraded. All the instruments have been swapped multiple times. So just like I'm on an iPhone 13, Count how many iterations better it is than the one I got in whenever I first got one. We've done that to the, the detectors, the cameras on Hubble. The solar arrays are like, produce twenty percent more power, but they're thirty percent smaller. So reliability, stability, performance, all have been radically improved. And electronic units on Hubble, there's one in particular that's like the. It's like the central nervous system of Hubble for the electrical system. Everything goes through there. When we're getting ready to prepare Hubble for launch, everything we heard from the engineers is that's not replaceable. It can't ever be replaced. We bolted it in there knowing it would never be replaced or taken out. And the other reason it can't be replaced is because it'd be like shutting off your brain. I mean, you can't ever turn that thing off. And we fought like hell. We said, you know, how many circuit boards are in this? It's a huge box. How many circuit boards are in here? A lot. Okay, you're telling me if one of those circuit boards goes bad, the world is just going to wash its hands of this multi-billion dollar telescope and say, never mind. I'm telling you, if one of those circuit cards goes back, some poor team of astronauts is going to be set up, sent up here to go try their best to do what you had decided could never be done. And so we we adapted that box. We actually made some changes that made it, the way I put it, when we first saw it, it was flat out impossible. It was absolutely impossible to change that box out in a spacesuit on orbit. We had to make changes that moved it from completely impossible to only only horrendously difficult. It was still horrendously difficult. But sure enough, I think it was the fourth servicing mission. That was the unit that was jeopardizing the mission. and. I forget which pair of spacewalkers went up there in a very demanding and tedious and long spacewalk. Took the old one out, put the new one in. So, you know, the tools got better. The astronauts had to get better. The engineers on the ground, once they had, you know, eight years, 10 years of, of experience with Hubble, then they could figure out a way to turn it off for long enough that the astronauts could fix it.
1: So let's move to James Webb, because Hubble obviously answered so many questions about telescopes in orbit and paved the way. When was James Webb a thing that was gonna happen before suddenly we all realize it's on our uh, Instagram feeds and what have you? What was that lead time? Cause it's been, it's been over 30 years.
0: Yeah, it's been a very long lead time. So in the Hubble era, Hubble was not alone. Hubble was one of a series of so-called great observatories that the science community conceived of in partnership with NASA. Hubble looks at the kind of light that our eyes can see. There was another one that could look in in the gamma ray portion of the spectrum. Started out being called gamma ray observatory, was renamed to Compton after another famous observer astronomer who worked in gamma rays. Uh, There was an infrared one conceived of that also went up. So there was a, a succession of telescopes to, again, look at all these different portions of the spectrum. No single Telescope and set of electronics can do that all together because of the physics of it all, and so that indeed happened. Hubble went up, the infrared one, Chandra went up, the gamma ray one, Compton went up. They all went up in the mid '80s, maybe a little bit into the early '90s, and the astronomy community was even then starting to think ahead. Uh, There, the astronomy community and the National Academy of Sciences here, uh, they do something every, I think it's about five years, called a Decadal Survey. So they you know, gather a bunch of the smart folks in astronomy, in spacecraft engineering, and they look down the road and they, and they try to look around the corner and say, what are the next great scientific questions that astronomy should tackle? What kind of instruments would it take to do that? And there's this Decadal Survey is done specifically around space astronomy. What would it take to do that? Uh, is the technology there? what emerging technologies should we be incubating to drive astronomy 10 or 20 years from now it's really a big sweep of things and i think i think it was in like the early 90s maybe the mid 90s that the notion came up of putting a telescope even further from earth i mean the earth radiates a lot of energy so if you want to get detectors as cold as they need to be to see the kinds of infrared energy that Webb can see, you've got to get further away from the Earth. And why why do you care about the kind of infrared energy and the kind of signal to noise that Webb can see? Because that lets you see further back in time, like even a lot further back in time. And so that became kind of the driving, one of the driving focal points for Webb of, we'd really like to be able to understand what the earliest galaxies look like. Galaxies we've been able to study with Compton and Chandra and Hubble are all comparatively near to Earth. I'm not going to try to pull the number of light years off the top of my head. You know, it's still like crazy far, but in sort of the sense of, well, how big is the whole universe? It's not quite the local neighborhood, but it's there's a limit to what those telescopes can see, to how far back in time and out in space they could see. The next frontier would be to build a telescope that could peer even further out in space, which means back in time. And so we're gonna to have to get further away from the earth to do that. And that's where the notion of something like Webb came from as far as I know. I should add the caveat, I don't read all of the decadal surveys in detail, so I, I might have the timing wrong or pieces of the story, but but that's the that's the sort of community brainstorming process that gives rise to these ideas in our country.
1: But you've done your time, so you know, <laughs> yeah. That's okay. You don't have to read it. I, I, didn't,
0: I didn't make it up out of whole cloth. It's not total fabrication.
1: So, you know, rookie language, can you explain to me how far away James Webb is compared to Hubble, you know, in driving miles?
0: Oh, yeah. Hubble is 270 ish. Well, let's round it up. Hubble is 300 driving miles above the Earth. The Webb is a million miles away from the Earth a long way.
1: That's a long way. That's that's a, a long way. That's more air miles than most people. Yeah. Through. So then clearly you can't pop up there and fix it.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: So what are the risks that it becomes a very expensive broken telescope that you can't get to? Or can you get to it with things other than astronauts?
0: Yeah. I mean, you could certainly send a robotic probe out there to get near to it, but... It's not designed let me say from a packaging point of view to be able to get at the bits that you might need to repair or replace or upgrade so the, the risks are there are principally two risks one is getting hit by bits of space debris and it has already been hit by some space debris one of the mirrors has got a ding in it not repairable ding And this happened before actually all the cool images that we've been seeing so it's clear that it's not really degrading or hampering the good astronomy or the gorgeous pictures but that you know that will happen there's little bits of debris teeny tiny bits of debris when when they're moving at those speeds can do some significant damage if you're orbiting around the earth at the altitude of the international space station and and you got hit by a poppy seed you would feel like someone bonked you with a 90 mile an hour pitch. So it's a lot of energy. The other chief hazard is radiation. The environment, space environment right near Earth is protected by something called the radiation belts. And it's just a phenomena in physics that, that means we have sort of a nice little protective sheath around us on Earth that shields us from the worst of the cosmic energy and the, and the energy from the sun. Web is outside of that. So it's in a much more intense radiation environment. And radiation will damage and degrade material and any material over time.
1: So, do we know what the life expectancy is of Web?
0: The design life, I believe, was 20 years. That means the engineers chose, made specific choices about the quality of the electronics and the materials that circuits are made of and wires are made of to be as as durable as possible and as resistant as possible to the radiation and, and, and other factors but it's pretty common i mean hubbles like i said hubble's design life was 15 years and it's you know cranking along at 33 so that's the more normal pattern in uh, with american spacecraft that they live beyond their design life so there's pretty good odds that that will happen with webb But some one-off bit of micrometeorite matter flinging around up there, if it hit the absolutely worst possible place, could be a a showstopper.
1: I'm going to pull out the there's no such thing as a stupid question card at this point, which is (laughs) it's a million miles away. So can it be lost? Like zoom away from Earth somehow? or Can we lose sight of it or could it move? If you draw draw a line between the Earth and the Moon,
0: got the gravitational field of the Earth, gravitational field of the Moon, and there are some particular unique points between those two bodies called the Lagrange points. And Webb is at the L2 point of Earth, which is where the interaction of the gravitational fields creates a, a little bit of a stable zone. Draw a line from the Sun through the Earth and a million miles out beyond the Earth And that's where Webb is. So it's a stable point. It's not orbiting around the earth like Hubble does. It's orbiting in what's called a halo orbit around that L2 stable point. That's where it's happy. That's where it's stable from a physics point of view. So it's not going to fall out of that or, you know, in that sense, it's not going to get lost. And we know where it is because of the the gyroscopes and, and other instruments aboard. So we know where it is. We know the mathematics of its halo orbit. I mean, you can't see it from Earth anyway. You could just you know, confirm through the navigation instruments that it is where it's
1: supposed to be. Can you see Hubble?
0: I, you can see Hubble if you look at the night sky right around dawn or dusk. And the reason is down on the ground where you are, you've already passed onto the dark side of the Earth. And the Earth's already rotated far enough that you don't see the sun anymore. But Hubble is high enough that it is still catching the sun. And so it will be a bright object in the sky. And there are a number of cell phone apps and computer websites. I'll bet if you went to a browser and typed in, you know, how to see Hubble or spot the Hubble, you can find many of them actually let you type in the town you're in, the city you're in, the place you're at. And it will tell you on what what days at evening or dawn and where in the sky can you see Hubble zooming by.
1: Wow. Do you ever check in on it yourself?
0: I do periodically. I check in on the station and I check in on Hubble now and then.
1: You know, we have this new, shiny, amazing James Webb telescope that's doing new things. that's impressing us through our social media feeds, which we didn't have when Hubble went up. Does James Webb take over any jobs that Hubble has been doing?
0: Yeah, it really doesn't. It's like putting a different player out on the football field. Again, Hubble largely looks at the sky in the same wavelengths of light light that our eyes see. It can see a little bit into what's called the near-infrared, a little bit like night vision goggles. But Webb sees in a much wider range of the infrared spectrum and does not take in visible light at all. So Webb is doing very different things than Hubble. And the simple way Being a geologist, not an astronomer, the simple way that I think about it is Hubble's largely going to be looking around and helping us understand our universe within, I think that, I think it's limited to something like 8 billion light years. And Webb is looking from there even further, further back. So Hubble's looking at basically modern day galaxies or, you know, galaxies of today and uh, not very not way back into time. And Webb can see way back into much earlier into the universe when you're just seeing the sort of incipient galaxy formation. So very different questions about very different periods in the history of the solar system. So Hubble in 2016 broke the cosmic distance record by observing a galaxy 13.4 billion Light years away. So that's not exactly the near neighborhood, is it? Um, James Webb will be able to see about nine times further than Hubble.
1: <laughs> okay, that's quite fun, isn't it? So,
0: you know, I'll, I'll look around the house and you look at the mountaintop.
1: And the other interesting thing that I discovered recently through a uh, program that one of my kids was watching was that people are pitching to use Hubble for their own projects. And that's yeah. used. So first of all, A, that's incredible. And I don't know if you know much about that process. And B, is that the same for James Webb or are NASA keeping it for themselves for the moment?
0: NASA has not kept either of these to themselves from the very beginning. So the, the Space Telescope Science Institute at Johns Hopkins University, or it's housed at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. It's a time, think of it as a time-sharing institute. At the beginning of Hubble, the teams of scientists that were with the program from the beginning and helped formulate, pull the program together and formulated and built the first instruments, proposed the first studies for a period of time, they got some guaranteed amount of observing time. And some of those were European because the European Space Agency countries contributed. Uh, I think they got 20% of the time that was in proportion to the the expertise and the um, hardware they contributed to Hubble. And then over time, the um, time sharing has widened to basically take in anyone who wants to propose an experiment, an observation that makes good use of Hubble's time. It, there's a review panel that you know takes all those in and uh, considers them and, and tries to decide what's the best use telescope time is precious, so this is all this is all just the same as on a mountaintop observatory, by the way. Time on the telescope is precious. Which bit of science is the absolute best use of the telescope? And how you know reliable is the performance of the team that's proposing it, especially if you know, there's some new computation or some new technique that they're using. So that's been going on for 30 years with Hubble. And I think what you're referring to is, and I don't, I don't know when this started. That even amateur astronomers, so you don't have to be affiliated with the university, and there are some really superbly skilled so called amateur astronomers. I don't think they're really amateur at all, but that just really means that not university professors. But my understanding is that they can also now submit a proposal to tell the team that controls Hubble, you know, have it do this for me. And uh, the team at Goddard and uh, Hopkins will program the the telescope schedule so that it does what you asked and send you the data. Webb is operating basically on the same pattern. I think largely the same scheme of probably the first round James Webb principal investigators. They probably get some upfront assurance uh, of goodly shares of time to reward them for for investing a decade plus of their careers into helping get this ready. And, and then the uh, scope will broaden to the full ast- astronomy community. And you know, I mean, that all makes sense because in a sense, the whole astronomy community in the United States contributed to both telescopes. They agreed, they agreed to invest the sums of money required to make these t- big instruments happen. And that by definition comes at the expense of other projects that maybe they personally could have done if the big thing wasn't being built. So they've they've all, sacrificed and contributed in various degrees but the core team of initial principal investigators has done the, the most intense work in that regard
1: what information have you have you seen what results have you seen from either of those two telescopes that you've taken something from you've discovered that is is remarkable to you because it's obviously both of these telescopes are sending data back all the time yeah has there been something that's come back that's that's stopped you in your tracks in any way?
0: Well, I mean countless, countless of the images that have come back have stopped me in my tracks. You know, I don't I don't follow the detailed science of either Hubble or Webb very closely, to be honest. I find I'm now kind of content to be just like you and just want to see the next cool image come out and just ooh and ah over it. I'm I'm kind of a galaxy fan, so I've just that's what's really dazzled me from Hubble is the range and variety of galaxies and, and the dynamics between them. I mean, you've got they have images of galaxies kind of colliding. I kind of thought that was only in science fiction movies. I guess the most amazing, really amazing thing to me that I do appreciate, I think, as a scientist, it's the Hubble deep field and ultra deep field. What that is, is astronomers ask themselves the question, see that patch of the sky up there that looks kind of like it's empty you think it really is and now that you got hubble they said well you know let's go find out they chose a tiny little swatch of the sky that you and me would look absolutely dark they essentially let hubble stare at it it's quite how you do it but they just looked and looked and looked at it and <laughs> they came back with these images that look like someone they look like you strewed grains of sand on a glass plate and then illuminated it with prism of lights. Just just speckle, 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 speckle everywhere, everywhere. That's the part you thought was dark and empty is speckle, speckle, speckle everywhere. And what's even more amazing, I mean, your, my first reaction probably everyone's is, wow, so many stars. And then you look more closely. You go, oh, my God, those little specks aren't stars. Every one of those little specks is a galaxy, is a Milky Way. I mean thousands of them in this little piece of sky that you kind of always thought was empty. And that just sort of blows my mind.
1: Mm. Other than just being in awe of what this these telescopes can see, what does success look like? What are we learning? What what's in it for us as as a human race? Or do our generations not get paid yet, other than in, <laughs> other than in kind of shock and awe value? And what are your hopes for for these Hubble and James Webb and, and telescopes of the future?
0: I actually think there's some real substance just to the shock and awe effect. And, I, and I've heard it, I've heard it verbally from colleagues, I see it on my social media feeds, that it's helping drive some degree of a consciousness shift that I, that I hope will, you know, have some repercussions and not just you know, poof away of how small we are, and if you know if, if everything I know, if the whole universe I know is actually that small, you know, then what are we fighting for? How are we making such a big thing over the little day-to-day thing? So I, I hope maybe that, you know, some shifting of perspective to help us put, put our own lives in perspective and maybe think again about whether even our perspective within our own life about, you know, what's big in life, what's little in life, I, you know, driving any rethink of that, I think can only help, so I, I hope it has that effect. And what does success look like? Success for NASA, because NASA's job is to push back the frontiers of science and knowledge about the cosmos, the solar system, and our place in it. I mean, that's the essence of NASA's job. So success for them, in a sense, has already been achieved with Webb, it's, it's, it's doing that, and it's doing that with the scale of public impact that as we said, is really spectacular. And then the, to get the detailed scientific knowledge out of it about how early galaxies formed. And I I don't even know what the questions are to ask about that, what, what, there's so many, you know, so many things that are not known that are theorized about the early evolution of the universe. How much more clarity about that, the physics of it, the, the when it, and how of it might we get from Hubble, that'll be the scientific payback that, that NASA is looking for. And that's the agency's job. So I think I'd say they've, you know, they've already got a guy at least on second base, maybe on third base. I don't I don't think the home run is too far off.
1: Mm -hmm. There's also talking about pictures of Hubble on the sides of trucks and on people's socks and posters in the airport and all of that stuff. But there's also an artistic.
0: Yeah.
1: As well, right. There's people are writing poems and songs, probably as we speak still.
0: Absolutely. And, and uh, on the trivial end of that scale, one of the things that has tickled me in my social media feeds is that some clever soul has taken a, an image of Van Gogh's famous Starry Night and superimposed it on uh, a bit of one of these early James Webb frames. It's stunning. I mean, it's, really, it's a really fun, creative piece. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, let's leaven the loaf of humanity with some dazzlement about this universe we live in, and some humility about who and where we really are, and some inspiring, you know, images and creations and words about the glory of it all. Let's do that. We could use a little bit of that. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission for more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.